hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Last week we started a chapter on the handling of contradictions among the people. We discussed handling contradictions among your people in a very democratic way, and understanding the difference between what is your people and what is an enemy who maybe has no actual vested interest in dealing with the contradictions and maybe just wants to overturn things. So let's continue with this chapter. Section 3. The question of the cooperative transformation of agriculture. We have a rural population of over 500 million, so how our peasants fare has a most important bearing on the development of our economy and the consolidation of our state power. In my view, the situation is basically sound. The cooperative transformation of agriculture has been successfully accomplished, and this has resolved the great contradiction in our country between socialist industrialization and the individual peasant economy. As the cooperative transformation of agriculture was completed so rapidly, some people were worried and wondered whether something untoward might occur. There are indeed some faults but fortunately they are not serious, and on the whole the movement is healthy. The peasants are working with a will, and last year there was an increase in the country's grain output despite the worst floods, droughts, and gales in years. Now there are people who are stirring up a miniature typhoon. They are saying that cooperation is no good, that there is nothing superior about it. Is cooperation superior or not? Among the documents distributed at today's meeting, there is one about the Wang Kuo Fan Cooperative in Sunhua County, Hopai Province, which I suggest you read. This cooperative is situated in a hilly region, which was very poor in the past and which for a number of years depended on relief grain from the people's government. When the cooperative was first set up in 1953, people called it the Pauper's Co-op but it has become better off year by year, and now, after four years of hard struggle, most of its households have reserves of grain. What was possible for this cooperative should also be possible for others to achieve under normal conditions in the same length of time or a little longer. Clearly, there are no grounds for saying that something has gone wrong with agricultural cooperation. It is also clear that it takes hard struggle to build cooperatives. New things always have to experience difficulties and setbacks as they grow. It is sheer fantasy to imagine that the cause of socialism is all plain sailing, and the success comes easy, with no difficulties or setbacks, or without the expenditure of tremendous effort. Who are the active supporters of the cooperatives? The overwhelming majority of the poor and lower middle peasants who constitute more than 70% of the rural population. Most of the other peasants are also placing their hopes on the cooperatives. Only a very small minority are really dissatisfied. Quite a number of persons have failed to analyze this situation and to make an overall examination of the achievements and shortcomings of the cooperatives and the causes of these shortcomings. Instead, they have taken part of the picture or one side of the matter for the whole, and consequently a miniature typhoon has been stirred up among some people, who are saying that the cooperatives are not superior. How long will it take to consolidate the cooperatives, 
and for this talk about their not being superior to wind up. Judging from the experience of the growth of many cooperatives, it will probably take five years or a little longer. As most of our cooperatives are only a little over a year old, it would be unreasonable to ask too much of them. In my view, we will be doing well enough if the cooperatives can be consolidated during the second five-year plan after being established in the first. The cooperatives are now in the process of gradual consolidation. There are certain contradictions that remain to be resolved, such as those between the state and the cooperatives, and those in and between the cooperatives themselves. To resolve these contradictions, we must pay constant attention to the problems of production and distribution. On the question of production, the cooperative economy must be subject to the unified economic planning of the state. While retaining a certain flexibility and independence that do not run counter to the state's unified plan or its policies, laws, and regulations. At the same time, every household in a cooperative must comply with the overall plan of the cooperative or production team to which it belongs. Though it may make its own appropriate plans in regard to land allotted for personal needs and to other individually operated economic undertakings. On the question of distribution, we must take the interests of the state, the collective, and the individual into account. We must properly handle the three-way relationship between the state agricultural tax, the cooperative's accumulation fund, and the peasant's personal income, and take constant care to make readjustments so as to resolve contradictions between them. Accumulation is essential for both the state and the cooperative but in neither case should it be excessive. We should do everything possible to enable the peasants in normal years to raise their personal incomes annually through increased production. Many people say that the peasants lead a hard life. Is this true? In one sense, it is. That is to say, because the imperialists and their agents oppressed and exploited us for over a century, ours is an impoverished country and the standard of living not only of our peasants but of our workers and intellectuals is still low. We shall need several decades of strenuous effort gradually to raise the standard of living of our people as a whole. In this context, it is right to say that the peasants lead a hard life. But in another sense, it is not true. We refer to the allegation that in the seven years since liberation, it is only the life of the workers that has been improved and not that of the peasants. As a matter of fact, with very few exceptions, there has been some improvement in the life of both the peasants and the workers. Since the liberation, the peasants have been free from landlord exploitation and their production has increased annually. Take grain crops. In 1949, the country's output was only something over 210 billion caddies. By 1956, it had risen to more than 360 billion caddies, an increase of nearly 150 billion caddies. The state agricultural tax is not heavy, only amounting to something over 30 billion caddies a year. State purchases of grain from the peasants at standard prices only amount to a little over 50 billion caddies a year. These two items together total over 80 billion caddies. Furthermore, more than half this grain is sold back to the villages and nearby towns. Obviously, no one can say that there has been no improvement in the life of the peasants. 
In order to help agriculture to develop and the cooperatives to become consolidated, we are beginning to stabilize the total amount of the grain tax plus the grain purchased by the state at somewhat more than 80 billion caddies within a few years. In this way, the small number of grain-deficient households still found in the countryside will stop being short. All peasant households, except some raising industrial crops, will either have grain reserves or at least become self-sufficient. There will no longer be poor peasants in the countryside, and the standard of living of the entire peasantry will reach or surpass the middle peasant's level. It is not right simply to compare a peasant's average annual income with a worker's and jump to the conclusion that one is too low and the other too high. Since the labour productivity of the workers is much higher than that of the peasants, and the latter's cost of living is much lower than that of the workers in the cities, the workers cannot be said to have received special favours from the state. The wages of a small number of workers and some state personnel are in fact a little too high. The peasants have a reason to be dissatisfied with this, and it is necessary to make certain appropriate adjustments according to specific circumstances. Section 4. The Question of the Industrialists and the Businessmen With regard to the transformation of our social system, the year 1956 saw the conversion of privately owned industrial and commercial enterprises into joint state-private enterprises, as well as the cooperative transformation of agriculture and handicrafts. The speed and smoothness of this conversion were closely bound up with our treating the contradiction between the working class and the national bourgeoisie as a contradiction among the people. Has this class contradiction been completely resolved? No, not yet. That will take a considerable period of time. However, some people say the capitalists have been so remolded that they are now not very different from the workers, and that further remolding is unnecessary. Others go so far as to say that the capitalists are even better than the workers. Still others ask, if remolding is necessary, why isn't it necessary for the working class? Are these opinions correct? Of course not. In the building of a socialist society, everybody needs remolding. The exploiters and also the working people. Who says it isn't necessary for the working class? Of course, the remolding of the exploiters is essentially different from that of the working people, and the two must not be confused. The working class remolds the whole of society in class struggle and in the struggle against nature, and in the process, it remolds itself. It must ceaselessly learn in the course of work, gradually overcome its shortcomings, and never stop doing so. Take, for example, those of us present here. Many of us make some progress each year. That is to say, we are remolding ourselves each year. For myself, I used to have all sorts of non-Marxist ideas, and it was only later that I embraced Marxism. I learned a little Marxism from books and took the first steps in remolding my ideology, but it was mainly through taking part in class struggle over the years that I came to be remolded, and if I am to make further progress, I must continue to learn otherwise I shall lag behind. Can the capitalists be so good that they need no more remolding? Some people contend that the Chinese bourgeoisie no longer has two sides to its character, but only one side. Is this true? No. 
While members of the bourgeoisie have become administrative personnel in joint state-private enterprises and are being transformed from exploiters into working people living by their own labor, they still get a fixed rate of interest on their capital in the joint enterprises. That is, they have not yet cut themselves loose from the roots of exploitation. Between them and the working class, there is still a considerable gap in ideology, sentiments, and habits of life. How can it be said that they no longer have two sides to their character? Even when they stop receiving their fixed interest payments and the bourgeois label is removed, they will still need ideological remolding for quite some time. If, as is alleged, the bourgeoisie no longer has a dual character, then the capitalists will no longer have the task of studying and of remolding themselves. It must be said that this view does not tally either with the actual situation of our industrialists and businessmen, or with what most of them want. During the past few years, most of them have been willing to study and have made marked progress. As their thorough remolding could be achieved only in the course of work, they should engage in labor, together with the staff and workers in the enterprises, and regard these enterprises as the chief places in which to remold themselves. But it is also important for them to change some of their old views through study. Such study should be on a voluntary basis. When they return to the enterprises after being in study groups for some weeks, many industrialists and businessmen find that they have more of a common language with the workers and the representatives of state ownership, and so there are better possibilities for working together. They know from personal experience that it is good for them to keep on studying and remolding themselves. The idea mentioned above that study and remolding are not necessary reflects the views not of the majority of industrialists and businessmen, but of only a small number. Section 5. The question of the intellectuals. The contradictions within the ranks of the people in our country also find expression among the intellectuals. The several million intellectuals who worked for the old society have come to serve the new society, and the question that now arises is how they can fit in with the needs of the new society and how we can help them to do so. This too is a contradiction among the people. Most of our intellectuals have made marked progress during the last seven years. They have shown that they are in favor of the socialist system. Many are diligently studying Marxism, and some have become communists. The latter, though at present small in number, are steadily increasing. Of course, there are still some intellectuals who are skeptical about socialism, or do not approve of it, but they are a minority. China needs the services of as many intellectuals as possible for the colossal task of building socialism. We should trust those who are really willing to serve the cause of socialism and should radically improve our relations with them and help them solve the problems requiring solution so that they can give full play to their talents. Many of our comrades are not good at uniting with intellectuals. They are stiff in their attitude towards them lack respect for their work, and interfere in certain scientific and cultural matters where interference is unwarranted. We must do away with all such shortcomings. Although large numbers of intellectuals have made progress, they should not be complacent. They must continue to remold themselves, 
gradually shed their bourgeois world outlook and acquire the proletarian communist world outlook, so that they can fully fit in with the needs of the new society and unite with the workers and peasants. The change in world outlook is fundamental, and up to now most of our intellectuals cannot be said to have accomplished it. We hope that they will continue to make progress, and that in the course of work and study, they will gradually acquire the communist world outlook, grasp Marxism-Leninism, and become integrated with the workers and peasants. We hope they will not stop halfway, or, what is worse, slide back, for there will be no future for them in going backwards. Since our country's social system has changed, and the economic base of bourgeois ideology has in the main been destroyed, not only is it imperative for large numbers of our intellectuals to change their world outlook, but it is also possible for them to do so. But a thorough change in world outlook takes a very long time, and we should spare no pains in helping them, and we must not be impatient. Actually, there are bound to be some who ideologically will always be reluctant to accept Marxism-Leninism and Communism. We should not be too exacting in what we demand of them. As long as they comply with the requirements laid down by the state and engage in legitimate pursuits, we should let them have opportunities for suitable work. Among students and intellectuals, there has recently been a falling off in ideological and political work and some unhealthy tendencies have appeared. Some people seem to think that there is no longer any need to concern themselves with politics, or with the future of the motherland and the ideals of mankind. It seems as if Marxism, once all the rage, is currently not so much in fashion. To counter these tendencies, we must strengthen our ideological and political work. Both students and intellectuals should study hard. In addition to the study of their specialized subjects, they must make progress ideologically and politically, which means they should study Marxism, current events, and politics. Not to have a correct political orientation is like not having a soul. The ideological remolding in the past was necessary and has yielded positive results, but it was carried on in a somewhat rough and ready fashion, and the feelings of some people were hurt. This was not good. We must avoid such shortcomings in future. All departments and organizations should shoulder their responsibilities for ideological and political work. This applies to the Communist Party, the Youth League, government departments in charge of this work, and especially to heads of educational institutions and teachers. Our educational policy must enable everyone who receives an education to develop morally, intellectually, and physically, and become a worker with both socialist consciousness and culture. We must spread the idea of building our country through diligence and thrift. We must help all our young people to understand that ours is still a very poor country, that we cannot change this situation radically in a short time and that only through decades of united effort by our younger generation and all our people, working with their own hands, can China be made prosperous and strong. The establishment of our socialist system has opened the road leading to the ideal society of the future, but to translate this ideal into reality needs hard work. Some of our young people think that everything ought to be perfect once a socialist society is established, and that they should be able to enjoy a happy life, ready-made, 
without working for it. This is unrealistic. Section 6. The question of the minority nationalities. The minority nationalities in our country number more than 30 million. Although they constitute only 6% of the total population, they inhabit extensive regions which comprise 50-60% to 60 of China's total area. It is thus imperative to foster good relations between the Han people and the minority nationalities. The key to this question lies in overcoming Han chauvinism. At the same time, efforts should also be made to overcome local nationality chauvinism, wherever it exists among the minority nationalities. Both Han chauvinism and local nationality chauvinism are harmful to the unity of the nationalities. They represent one kind of contradiction among the people which should be resolved. We have already done some work to this end. In most of the areas inhabited by minority nationalities, there has been considerable improvement in the relations between the nationalities, but a number of problems remain to be solved. In some areas, both Han chauvinism and local nationality chauvinism still exist to a serious degree, and this demands full attention. As a result of the efforts of the people of all nationalities over the last few years, democratic reforms and socialist transformation have in the main been completed in most of the minority nationality areas. Democratic reforms have not yet been carried out in Tibet because conditions are not ripe. According to the 17 Article Agreement, reached between the Central People's Government and the Local Government of Tibet, the reform of the social system must be carried out. But the timing can only be decided when the great majority of the people of Tibet and the local leading public figures consider it opportune, and one should not be impatient. It has now been decided not to proceed with democratic reforms in Tibet during the period of the second five-year plan, whether to proceed with them in the period of the third five-year plan can only be decided in the light of the situation at the time. Section 7. Overall Consideration and Proper Arrangement By overall consideration, we mean consideration that embraces the 600 million people of our country. In drawing up plans, handling affairs, or thinking over problems, we must proceed from the fact that China has a population of 600 million, and we must never forget this fact. Why do we make a point of this? Is it possible that there are people who are still unaware that we have a population of 600 million? Of course, everyone knows this, but when it comes to actual practice, some people forget all about it and act as though the fewer the people, the smaller the circle, the better. Those who have this small circle mentality abhor the idea of bringing every positive factor into play, of uniting with everyone who can be united with, and of doing everything possible to turn negative factors into positive ones, so as to serve the great cause of building a socialist society. I hope these people will take a wider view, and fully recognize that we have a population of 600 million, that this is an objective fact, and that it is an asset for us. Our large population is a good thing, but of course it also creates certain difficulties. Construction is going ahead vigorously on all fronts, and very successfully too. But in the present transition period of tremendous social change, there are still many difficult problems. Progress and at the same time difficulties, this is a contradiction. 
However, not only should all contradictions be resolved, they definitely can be. Our guiding principle is overall consideration and proper arrangement. Whatever the problem, whether it concerns food, natural calamities, employment, education, the intellectuals, the united front of all patriotic forces, the minority nationalities, or anything else, we must always proceed from the standpoint of overall consideration, which embraces the whole people, and must make the proper arrangement, after consultation with all the circles concerned, in the light of what is feasible at a particular time and place. On no account should we complain that there are too many people, that others are backward, that things are troublesome and hard to handle, and close the door on them. Do I mean to say that the government alone must take care of everyone and everything? Of course not. In many cases, they can be left to the direct care of the public organizations or the masses. Both are quite capable of devising many good ways of handling them. This also comes within the scope of the principle of overall consideration and proper arrangement. We should give guidance on this to the public organizations and the people everywhere. Section 8. On Let a Hundred Flowers Blossom, Let a Hundred Schools of Thought Contend, and Long-Term Coexistence and Mutual Supervision. Let a Hundred Flowers Blossom, Let a Hundred Schools of Thought Contend, and long-term coexistence and mutual supervision. How did these slogans come to be put forward? They were put forward in the light of China's specific conditions, in recognition of the continued existence of various kinds of contradictions in socialist society, and in response to the country's urgent need to speed up its economic and cultural development. Letting a hundred flowers blossom and a hundred schools of thought contend is the policy for promoting progress in the arts and sciences, and a flourishing socialist culture in our land. Different forms and styles in art should develop freely, and different schools in science should contend freely. We think that it is harmful to the growth of art and science if administrative measures are used to impose one particular style of art or school of thought and to ban another. Questions of right and wrong in the arts and sciences should be settled through free discussion in artistic and scientific circles, and through practical work in these fields. They should not be settled in an over-simple manner. A period of trial is often needed to determine whether something is right or wrong. Throughout history, at the outset, new and correct things often fail to win recognition from the majority of people and had to develop by twists and turns through struggle. Often, correct and good things were first regarded not as fragrant flowers, but as poisonous weeds. Copernicus's theory of the solar system and Darwin's theory of evolution were once dismissed as erroneous and had to win out over bitter opposition. Chinese history offers many similar examples. In a socialist society, the conditions for the growth of the new are radically different from and far superior to those in the old society. Nevertheless, it often happens that new rising forces are held back and sound ideas stifled. Besides, even in the absence of their deliberate suppression, the growth of new things may be hindered simply through lack of discernment. It is therefore necessary to be careful about questions of right and wrong in the arts and sciences, to encourage free discussion and avoid hasty conclusions. We believe that such an attitude 
will help ensure a relatively smooth development of the arts and sciences. Marxism, too, has developed through struggle. At the beginning, Marxism was subjected to all kinds of attack and regarded as a poisonous weed. This is still the case in many parts of the world. In the socialist countries, it enjoys a different position. But non-Marxist, and what is more, anti-Marxist ideologies exist even in these countries. In China, although socialist transformation has in the main been completed as regards the system of ownership, and although the large-scale, turbulent class struggles of the masses, characteristic of times of revolution, have in the main come to an end, there are still remnants of the overthrown landlord and comprador classes. There is still a bourgeoisie, and the remolding of the petty bourgeoisie has only just started. Class struggle is by no means over. The class struggle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, the class struggle between the various political forces, and the class struggle between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie in the ideological field will still be protracted and torturous, and at times even very sharp. The proletariat seeks to transform the world according to its own world outlook, and so does the bourgeoisie. In this respect, the question of which will win out, socialism or capitalism, is not really settled yet. Marxists remain a minority among the entire population as well as among the intellectuals. Therefore, Marxism must continue to develop through struggle. Marxism can develop only through struggle. And this is not only true of the past and the present, it is necessarily true of the future as well. What is correct invariably develops in the course of struggle with what is wrong. The true, the good, and the beautiful always exist by contract with the false, the evil, and the ugly, and grow in struggle with them. As soon as something erroneous is rejected and a particular truth accepted by mankind, new truths begin to struggle with new errors. Such struggles will never end. This is the law of development of truth, and, naturally, of Marxism. It will take a fairly long period of time to decide the issue in the ideological struggle between socialism and capitalism in our country. The reason is that the influence of the bourgeoisie and of the intellectuals who come from the old society, the very influence which constitutes their class ideology, will persist in our country for a long time. If this is not understood at all, or is insufficiently understood, the gravest of mistakes will be made, and the necessity of waging struggle in the ideological field will be ignored. Ideological struggle differs from other forms of struggle, since the only method used is painstaking reasoning, and not crude coercion. Today, socialism is in an advantageous position in the ideological struggle. The basic power of the state is in the hands of the working people, led by the proletariat. The Communist Party is strong and its prestige high. Although there are defects and mistakes in our work, every fair-minded person can see that we are loyal to the people, that we are both determined and able to build up our motherland together with them and that we have already achieved great successes and will achieve still greater ones. The vast majority of the bourgeoisie and the intellectuals who come from the old society are patriotic and are willing to serve their flourishing socialist motherland. They know they will have nothing to fall back on, and their future cannot possibly be bright if they turn away from the socialist cause and from the working people led by the Communist Party.
people may ask, since Marxism is accepted as the guiding ideology by the majority of the people in our country, can it be criticized? Certainly it can. Marxism is scientific truth and fears no criticism. If it did, and if it could be overthrown by criticism, it would be worthless. In fact, aren't idealists criticizing Marxism every day and in every way? And those who harbor bourgeois and petty bourgeois ideas and do not wish to change? Aren't they also criticizing Marxism in every way? Marxists should not be afraid of criticism from any quarter. Quite the contrary. They need to temper and develop themselves, and win new positions in the teeth of criticism and in the storm and stress of struggle. Fighting against wrong ideas is like being vaccinated. A man develops greater immunity from disease as a result of vaccination. Plants raised in hothouses are unlikely to be hardy. Carrying out the policy of letting a hundred flowers blossom and a hundred schools of thought contend will not weaken but strengthen the leading position of Marxism in the ideological field. What should our policy be towards non-Marxist ideas? As far as unmistakable counter-revolutionaries and saboteurs of the socialist cause are concerned, the matter is easy. We simply deprive them of their freedom of speech. But incorrect ideas among the people are quite a different matter. Will it do to ban such ideas and deny them any opportunity for expression? Certainly not. It is not only futile, but very harmful to use crude methods in dealing with ideological questions among the people, with questions about man's mental world. You may ban the expression of wrong ideas, but the ideas will still be there. On the one hand, if correct ideas are pampered in hothouses and never exposed to the elements and immunized against disease, they will not win out against erroneous ones. Therefore, it is only by employing the method of discussion, criticism, and reasoning that we can really foster correct ideas and overcome wrong ones, and that we can really settle issues. It is inevitable that the bourgeois and petty bourgeois will give expression to their own ideologies. It is inevitable that they will stubbornly assert themselves on political and ideological questions by every possible means. You cannot expect them to do otherwise. We should not use the method of suppression and prevent them from expressing themselves, but should allow them to do so and at the same time argue with them and direct appropriate criticism at them. Undoubtedly, we must criticize wrong ideas of every description. It certainly would not be right to refrain from criticism, look on while wrong ideas spread unchecked, and allow them to dominate the field. Mistakes must be criticized and poisonous weeds fought wherever they crop up. However, such criticisms should not be dogmatic, and the metaphysical method should not be used, but instead the effort should be made to apply the dialectical method. What is needed is scientific analysis and convincing argument. Dogmatic criticism settles nothing. We are against poisonous weeds of whatever kind, but we must carefully distinguish between what is really a poisonous weed and what is really a fragrant flower. Together with the masses of the people, we must learn to differentiate carefully between the two, and use correct methods to fight the poisonous weeds. At the same time as we criticize dogmatism, we must direct our attention to criticizing revisionism. Revisionism, or right opportunism, is a bourgeois trend of thought that is even more dangerous than dogmatism. The revisionists, the right opportunists, pay lip service to Marxism. They too attack dogmatism. But what they are really attacking is the quintessence of Marxism, 
They oppose or distort materialism and dialectics, oppose or try to weaken the people's democratic dictatorship and the leading role of the Communist Party, and oppose or try to weaken socialist transformation and socialist construction. Even after the basic victory of our socialist revolution, there will still be a number of people in our society who vainly hope to restore the capitalist system, and are sure to fight the working class on every front, including the ideological one. And their right-hand men in this struggle are the revisionists. Literally the two slogans, let a hundred flowers blossom and let a hundred schools of thought contend, have no class character. The proletariat can turn them to account, and so can the bourgeoisie or others. Different classes, strata, and social groups each have their own views on what are fragrant flowers and what are poisonous weeds. Then, from the point of view of the masses, what should be the criteria today for distinguishing fragrant flowers from poisonous weeds? In their political activities, how should our people judge whether a person's words and deeds are right or wrong? On the basis of the principles of our constitution, the will of the overwhelming majority of our people, and the common political positions which have been proclaimed on various occasions by our political parties, we consider that, broadly speaking, the criteria should be as follows. 1. Words and deeds should help to unite and not divide the people of all our nationalities. 2. They should be beneficial and not harmful to socialist transformation and socialist construction. 3. They should help to consolidate and not undermine or weaken the people's democratic dictatorship. 4. They should help to consolidate and not undermine or weaken democratic centralism. 5. They should help to strengthen and not shake off or weaken the leadership of the Communist Party. 6. They should be beneficial and not harmful to international socialist unity and the unity of the peace-loving people of the world. Of these six criteria, the most important are the two about the socialist path and the leadership of the party. These criteria are put forward not to hinder but to foster the free discussion of questions among the people. Those who disapprove of these criteria can still state their own views and argue their case. However, so long as the majority of the people have clear-cut criteria to go by, criticism and self-criticism can be conducted along proper lines, and these criteria can be applied to people's words and deeds to determine whether they are right or wrong, whether they are fragrant flowers or poisonous weeds. These are political criteria. Naturally, to judge the validity of scientific theories or assess the aesthetic value of works of art, other relevant criteria are needed. But these six political criteria are applicable to all activities in the arts and sciences. In a socialist country like ours, can there possibly be any useful scientific or artistic activity which runs counter to these political criteria? The views set out above are based on China's specific historical conditions. Conditions vary in different socialist countries and with different communist parties. Therefore, we do not maintain that they should or must adopt the Chinese way. The slogan, long-term coexistence and mutual supervision, is also a product of China's specific historical conditions. It was not put forward all of a sudden, but had been in the making for several years. The idea of long-term coexistence had been there for a long time. When the socialist system was in the main established last year, 
the slogan was formulated in explicit terms. Why should the bourgeois and petty bourgeois democratic parties be allowed to exist side by side with the party of the working class over a long period of time? Because we have no reason for not adopting the policy of long-term coexistence with all those political parties which are truly devoted to the task of uniting the people for the cause of socialism, and which enjoy the trust of the people. As early as June 1950, at the second session of the first National Committee of the Political Consultative Conference, I put the matter in this way, quote, The people and their government have no reason to reject anyone or deny him the opportunity of making a living and rendering service to the country, provided he is really willing to serve the people, and provided he really helped and did a good turn when the people were faced with difficulties and keeps on doing good without giving up halfway. End quote. What I was discussing here was the political basis for the long-term coexistence of the various parties. It is the desire as well as the policy of the Communist Party to exist side by side with the Democratic parties for a long time to come. But whether the Democratic parties can long remain in existence depends not merely on the desire of the Communist Party, but on how well they acquit themselves and on whether they enjoy the trust of the people. Mutual supervision along the various parties is also a long-established fact, in the sense that they have long been advising and criticizing each other. Mutual supervision is obviously not a one-sided matter. It means that the Communist Party can exude... It means that the Communist Party can exercise supervision over the Democratic parties and vice versa. Why should the Democratic parties be allowed to exercise supervision over the Communist Party? because a party as much as an individual has great need to hear different opinions from its own. We all know that supervision over the Communist Party is mainly exercised by the working people and the party membership, but it augments the benefit to us to have supervision by the Democratic parties too. Of course, the advice and criticism exchanged by the Communist Party and the Democratic parties will play a positive supervisory role only when they conform to the six political criteria given above. Thus we hope that in order to fit in with the needs of the new society, all the democratic parties will pay attention to the ideological remolding and strive for long-term coexistence with the communist party and mutual supervision. And that's our reading for this week. We will be finishing this chapter next week. If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other podcasts about books, video games, movies, anime. And our intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find that and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. Keep reading.